I'm going to do a review of Sicha number three, Mishpatim, volume 16. Not covering everything, but much of the Sicha. The Sicha is based on the discussion in today's Torah portion. There's a special law regarding somebody who steals an ox or a sheep. And he doesn't suffice by stealing it, but he either sells it or butchers it. Now he has to pay an extra penalty. Normally, if I steal, so it depends. If I stole in broad daylight, uh, then I, I just have to repay it. If I stole in hiding, it's called a ganav, uh, at night or in hiding, uh, then I pay double. As we'll see later in the sikha, it shows that I, I'm not afraid of Hashem, but I am afraid of people. But that's normally thievery. You either pay back what you stole, or in a case of a thief who did it in hiding, you pay double as a penalty. But when it comes to this one case, you stole an ox or a sheep, but not just that. You then either slaughtered it or sold it. The Torah has a special law for whatever reason. I don't know if a reason is given that for those two, the Mepharshim that I saw say that this is a chok. It's beyond rationale. Hashem decided if you steal an ox or a sheep and you go ahead and sell it or butcher it, you have to pay not only the uh, the, the single or double payment, but you actually have a penalty for the ox, you pay five oxen, for the sheep, you pay four. That's a verse in today's Torah portion. Let me just bring it up onto the screen, one second. So, So that's the Torah today, Mishpatim, verse, chapter 21, verse 37. One steals an ox or a sheep, slaughters and sells it. He paid five oxen for the ox, four sheep for the sheep. Now, there's a discussion of why the difference. To my understanding, again, the general concept is not explained. It's not a rational mitzvah of why an ox and a sheep were isolated from all other animals. If I steal your donkey, if I steal your camel, if I steal your... Your horse, I don't have these extra penalties of four or five, only these two. And these two only if I butchered it or sold it. Not only from my understanding, this is a, a super rational mitzvah. However, there's an explanation and an exploration among the sages why the difference between the two. So Rashi quotes from the Talmud. And he says, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, the Torah cares for people's honor. And therefore, a sheep is carried. An ox, you can walk it out if you're stealing it. The sheep you have to carry on your shoulder. And therefore, there's more shame. The thief had to go through shame of running away with the sheep on his shoulder. And therefore, he gets a discount. He only gets four penalties, not five. That's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's opinion. Rabbi Meir's opinion is something else. He says, look how great Torah considers the the value of work, that, that an ox has something added over a sheep that is used for work. And therefore, if I stole the guy's ox, I took away productivity, if you will, and therefore I got to pay a fifth penalty. So these are the two opinions, the way the Rashi is interpreting based on the Talmud. To analyze it, they are both coming from totally different angles. 
Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. If you analyze for one moment, says the Rebbe, he looks at it that the base law is how much should he really pay? He should pay five. But we give you a discount. We reduce it to four in the case of the sheep because of the shame. Whereas Rabbi Meir looks like the opposite. The base law seems to be four, meaning what is Hashem thinking? What should be your penalty for this? Really four, both. But you know what? For the ox, because of work, we raise it additional fifth. So their opinions are different. And, uh, and opposites. What is the base law? Is it five discounted by the sheep? Or is it four uh, raised by the ox? And these become the two opinions of what is the focus here. I gave the class this morning on my Zoom and one of the Balabatim, one of the students in the class said, why do we have to analyze this? Why can't we just say the Torah has two laws? Remember, this is a super rational law anyway. And only these two animals, and only if they were butchered or sold. So the Torah is saying an ox is five and a, and a sheep is four. Why do we have to say no? It's either they were supposed to be five, both of them, but one was reduced for shame, or both are supposed to be four, but one was penalized for work. Why are we doing this? So I said to them, which I believe is in the Sikha someplace or in the footnotes, because the Torah intertwines them in, as one. If the Torah would say them in two separate verses or two separate parts of the same verse even, then it would be different. The Torah would say, if you steal an ox and you sell it and butcher it, you got to do five. And then it would say, if you steal a donkey, you pay four. There would be no need for this analysis. But if the Torah, being the Torah, puts them in one, if you steal both an ox or a donkey, you go into this category, and then we differentiate them. For an ox, five. For a donkey, four. Aha! The Torah is indicating that really they're categorically one, and the same, one of the same base law, except the second one deviates because either it's discounted in the opinion of Rabbi Yochanan or it is penalized in the opinion of Rabbi Meir. Okay. Comes along the Rebbe and asks three questions, or at least three questions that I'm zeroing in on, which I think are the three main questions. Number one is, why do we need two interpretations? We know the principle is that Rashi only brings the pshat, the literal meaning even though Rashi is quoting Talmud and other sources in much of his work, but his job is not to uh, write the whole Talmud into the Rashi. Incidentally, there's a Chumash called Torah Tmima, which does that. It tells you all the commentary on any verse uh, as it appears in the Talmud. That's not Rashi's job at all. Rashi only uh, comments, as we've discussed many times, uh, it, when there is a need to explain the literal meaning of the text as the famous book, What's Bothering Rashi? There's got to be a problem. And it's a problem that's on the literal level. And that's why most times Rashi only has one opinion. Because even if the Talmud has two or three or five, Rashi will have one, the one that makes most sense in the literal level. If Rashi brings two opinions, as he does in this case, that means you need both. Why would you need both? Why not pick one? Question two. The language of the Rashi seems to indicate that the two opinions are not really arguing, but they're agreeing, and they go hand in hand. Why? This is interesting, because the language is, said Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, said Rabbi Meir. Not the normal language is Rabbi Yochanan said, Rabbi Meir said. And it makes a big difference in the Hebrew. If it would say, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Amar Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yochanan said, I'm sorry, if it would say Rabbi Yochanan Omer, and then Rabbi Meir Omer, 
Rabbi Yochanan said, and Rabbi Meir said, it's a language of that they're being argumentative and they're disagreeing with one another. But whenever it says in Torah and Talmud, not Rabbi Yochanan Omer, but Omar Rabbi Yochanan, Omar Rabbi Meir, then said Rabbi Yochanan, said Rabbi Meir, then it means that the two opinions are not mutually exclusive. They're just giving two approaches. They both, they both stand. A good example for this in the Talmud and in the Mishnah is the tractate of ethics of our fathers, which is not really illegal and not so much subject to debate. And therefore, very often, instead of saying that the sages said what they said, instead of saying Rabbi Akiva said, Rabbi Shimon said, it'll say, um, said Rabbi Akiva, said Rabbi Shimon. Because they're not saying their opinion to the exclusion of the other opinion, they're adding information and wisdom in the world of ethics. And here, that's how this is expressed in Rashi. What's fascinating is, the Rebbe points out that's, that Rashi deviates from the Talmud in this. In the Talmud, it is written as two mutually exclusive opinions. In the Talmud, it doesn't say Rabbi Yochanan, Amar, Rabbi Meir, Amar, but it says Amar, Rabbi Yochanan, Amar, Rabbi Meir. And Rashi deviates from that. And as you study in many of the sikhs, you see that the Rebbe analyzes Rashi, the way he makes subtle changes from the sources from which he gets his commentary, the classic oral Torah of the Talmud, of the Mishnah, of the Medrash, what have you. And he quotes them, but he changes the order or changes words, or like in this case. And in, in the Rabbi often teaches us that therein lies Rashi's way of hinting to us what he's trying to do. Why is Rashi uh, indicating that this is not a disagreement. How could it not be a disagreement? We just explained really well that there's the total polar opposites on what the base law is and what is the adjustment. And then finally, question three, which the Rebbe adds, which is the Rebbe's way of introducing the Rebbe's explanation, which will answer all three questions. Question three is, let's talk about this. According to Rabbi Yochanan, that what? Because the thief shamed himself by carrying the sheep, he now gets a discount instead of paying five, which he was supposed to, he gets to pay only four. Why should the victim lose one sheep? Because of this guy's shame? If he had shame, let him go for therapy. But why should this guy lose? Why do we take away with the victim what's coming to him? It's a very strong question. And based on this, this is a question in shot. This is a question that's bothersome on the literal level. How can Rabbi Yochanan say such a thing? Really, you're entitled to, to, to five sheep. That's what Hashem's opinion. But we reduced it to four in the case of the sheep because of shame. Because he had shame, the Ghana, I got to lose what's coming to me? That's not fair. I got to get what I deserve. Plus, he's not a nice guy anyway. How does this make sense? It's a very strong question. Says the Rebbe, based on this, Rashi is forced to bring both opinions. Not only that, but to change the wording subtly so that it's introduced that it's not two opposite opinions, but two approaches to the same thing. Both stand hand in hand and side by side, two perspectives. And the Rebbe gives his landmark mind-blowing explanation here. That Rabbi Yochanan sees the law from the thief's perspective. Rabbi Meir sees the law from the victim's perspective. And that Torah is actually teaching us, if you ask Torah, if you ask Hashem, what should be done in such a case? When a person did this, infraction. And Torah will say to you, well, let's see. When I'm speaking to the thief and I want to give the thief the punishment uh, to mete out the justice that he deserves for his sin, for his dishonesty and thievery, etc. 
he deserves to pay five. But I'll give him a discount in the case of the sheep. But that's what he deserves in order to mete out justice on the thief. Conversely, when the victim says to Torah, to Hashem, what should happen? What should be my compensation for such a loss? Hashem will say, such a loss, you deserve four. But you know what? But he acts, I'm going to up it. And this is the reason why Rashi, this answers all our questions. Why? Question number three, firstly. Uh, how could Rabbi Yochanan say that the victim should lose because of the thief's shame? The answer is, the victim is not losing. From the perspective of, of, the, of the thief, he's supposed to have five and we reduce it to four. But from the perspective of the, of the victim, he's supposed to have four. That's what Torah's opinion is. Four is enough. And we're actually giving him a bonus, fifth one, in the case of the ox, for the reason Rabbi Meir gives. And that also explains why Rashi brings two interpretations, because they're not two interpretations. They're both needed. And Rashi actually changed the wording as in question number two, so that it's two interpretations that both stand up side by side because both are needed because Rashi is brilliantly, according to the Rebbe, who is brilliantly illuminating this for us, pointing out that both opinions are presenting two perspectives because that's the only way to make sense of question three. It's the only way to make sense of how the Torah can teach you one law about two cases which nominally means it should have the same law, and yet there's one that gets a reduction. How is that fair? And the answer is, it depends which perspective. From one perspective, it's a reduction, and from the other, it's a bonus. Based on this, the Rebbe now explains, why is Rabbi Yochanan first? We know Rashi has a rule when he gives two interpretations. Uh, the one that comes first is telling. So the Rebbe explains it here based on the aforementioned on a simple level because in the Torah it's listed first. In the Torah it says, if I steal your ox or your sheep, I should pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So it lists the five oxen for the ox first, and which is the opinion, which is the approach of Rabbi Yochanan that the, uh, that the uh, default, so to speak, payment is the five and that the sheep is reduced based on the way the Torah presents it. And I'm suggesting, and I discussed this also with colleagues, that this lends itself to, and it says it in the Sikh actually, that the thieves, not only because the Torah lists it first, but why does the Torah list it first, so to speak, based on the Rebbe's interpretation of this Rashi, that in Judaism and Torah law, we always focus on responsibilities more than rights. Torah is a book of law, which means a book of instruction telling you what to do. Later, we'll discuss what he's entitled to. But the first thing is to tell you what to do. So in this case, we have two perspectives. What should we focus on? Should we focus on what the Torah is telling the thief, how, he should, uh, how justice should be meted out for him and how he makes amends? Or should we worry about the victim getting what he lost and what he needs? And the answer is Torah, a book of laws. Law, by definition, is instruction. It speaks to the thief and tells him what he needs to do. And then it deals with the victim uh, getting what he needs. Parenthetically, I'm just adding, and this was a discussion that was also on one of the chats uh, of people who studied the Sichos, 
that in Torah there's a difference between responsibility versus rights. Uh, this is different the way it is in modern society. Even though American law is pretty decent and it's, you might say, a derivative lahabdal of Torah law. However, it still seems stuck. It still seems to hit uh, roadblocks where victims, where, where thieves claim victimhood. This is something that we're seeing now in society where thieves claim victimhood and police have no rights to uphold the law, etc. Because in America, the focus isn't on responsibility. It's the Bill of Rights, not the Bill of Responsibilities. And the foundation of that is because there, it's not based ultimately on the fact that there is a God and an absolute truth, even though it says that. But I guess it doesn't really mean that. It doesn't say, well, there's a God and a truth, and these are truths that are not negotiable, self-evident, in which case you and I have a responsibility to that God. Rather, our society is based on the fact that it's self-evident that I have a right to freedom and liberty and, and pursuit of happiness. It's about me. So I'm like God. Every person is like God claiming their rights. And therefore society's approach is, uh, I broke into your store, I looted your material, I broke into your house, I did something. What are your rights? Well, you have the right to remain silent. And you have the right to an attorney and you have a right to, um, uh, to be safe even though you broke into someone's house. But if you weren't armed and about to shoot him, he has, you have a right for your... Uh, uh, for, you, for your protection. So that is the whole focus. Not to say that a criminal shouldn't have rights, but the focus is backwards. Whereas in Torah, the focus is, what is your responsibility as a decent human being towards others and towards the law? Because there is a God, which is the fundamental truth of justice upon which the fundamental truth of justice is based. And therefore what's his is his and I have no right to take it. And therefore that's my responsibility. Therefore, when there's a case like there is one in front of us, we focus on the responsibility of the thief. And then we deal with the rights of the victim. Further parenthetically, in my class uh, with my Balabatim, with my local community, I just analyzed this a little further and explained this is the problem of, of liberalism run amok versus charity and social justice as it is in Torah. Because society, uh, it takes the concept of social justice to the point that uh, I have a right to your money, which clearly is not fair. On the other hand, a person says, wait, what about charity? So it's explained, society speaks about rights. I have a right to live equally with you. There should be equal distribution of wealth and all of that stuff, which is not fair according to Torah. What Torah says is nobody has rights. You have responsibilities. Each person has a responsibility to work hard and earn a living. If I'm gonna sit back and do nothing and then I wanna have a right to your money, that is a bum, that's not kosher. You have responsibilities, not rights. But then what about the concept of tzedakah? That's the responsibility of the person who has more than that they should help the other person. But not that the other person has the right to their money. It's a small difference that changes everything. In fact, if there's a person living with the attitude that they have a right to the wealthy person's money, it's questionable if the wealthy person should help him because he's, a, he's enabling him. Maybe you should just give him the bare minimum to survive and teach him a trade and teach him how to fish rather than giving him a fish. So the Jewish approach is very much predicated on this attitude. But again, coming back here, this explains the bottom of the screen why Rabbi Yochanan's law is first because it focuses on the responsibility of the thief, Torah nominally is a book of laws, 
and laws are given as instructions to people, responsibilities, rather than talking about consequences of a thief. Moving right along. So we explained this whole thing. We have the two opinions. They both stand side by side. We answer all the Rebbe's questions. But then the Rebbe says, what about the fact that the names of the sages are listed? We know that in Rashi, he seldom quotes the names of the sages. He doesn't want to confuse the student. There's no need to give him extra information. It's TMI. He doesn't tell you if it's in the Talmud or the Medrash or who said what. He does that only if it's going to help the student. However, when does he do it? If it's going to help only what Rashi calls Talmud Mimulach, a salty student, a sharp student. It's not something that the average student will be bothered by, which is why Rashi will not explain it explicitly. It'll only be something that's bothersome to the sharp student, but in order to, to satisfy that sharper student, he embeds the answer by hinting it by the fact that he does include the name of the sages or his source. How do you fit that here? Why does it have to say the, the two names of Yochanan and Rabbi Meir? So the Rebbe says, Rabbi Yochanan was famous for saying, no one ever greeted me first. It's extraordinary. No one ever greeted me first. Even a non-Jew, he's not only the Jewish people or his own students or community, a non-Jew, a total stranger on the street, whatever, it didn't make a difference. If he's meeting a human being, he's the one who greets them first. People are afraid to do that. They don't want to be uh, ignored. But Rabbi Yochanan didn't care. He showed a real respect for God's creations, not even Jewish people, all people. And that fits in line with Rabbi Yochanan's opinion of why he has his angle, because the Torah cares for people's honor. And, they, and it has to be someone like Rabbi Yochanan who takes it to an extreme, but he's greeting everybody. And, and even a Jew, a non-Jew, didn't make a difference. And, and, and the extreme is he never missed on keeping that principle. Which means to him, this was a very big deal. And that's why it makes sense that he should be the one to say this, that we give the thief a reduction. He's a thief. He's not such a nice person. We give him a reduction because of the shame of carrying the sheep. A, he's not a nice person. He's not even an honest person. B, how much shame is there in carrying the, the, the sheep? There's no one there. He's a thief. He did it in the middle of the night. So there's shame in carrying the sheep. There's very little shame. The shame is that when he comes to court and the story is discussed and we realize that he stole a sheep, the people in court will envision the guy slapping a sheep on his shoulder. So this is like, uh, this is shame twice removed. And still, Rabbi Yochanan is bothered by that and says that the Torah gives him a reduction. And therefore, that is in line. That's something that will bother the salty student. Why is this important? And the answer is because, don't you know, Rabbi Yochanan really takes the idea of human uh, uh, dignity, if you will, to, uh, to, to an extreme, almost to a fault, that he'll always greet everyone without regard who that might be. He'll greet them first. Incidentally, interesting to point out that it's famously known that the Rebbe, when he would walk to, back in the day when the Rebbe would walk a lot, and rather than being driven, he visited his mother on his part when Kingston and president. But when he walked home for many, many years before they, they, they drove the Rebbe, and many of the non-Jews in the neighborhood, Lahavdal, will relate of how the Rebbe always greeted them, it seems without exception. Okay, what about Rabbi Meir? Why is his name listed? Because here too, the salty student has a problem. 
salty student says that what? That we're celebrating the greatness of work. And that's why the axe thief uh, gets a penalty of a fifth axe. The question is, the concept of an ox being used for work is a minority case. It's not the most common. First of all, many oxen are butchered and they're not fit for hard labor. The ox in this case is likely one of those oxen. Proof is that the thief went, ran ahead and immediately and butchered it. Didn't save it for his plowing. Plus, even if it's a plow, if plows fit ox, how often do you plow? Twice a year for each season? For a little bit of time each day? It's not like that. This is what's happening majority of the time. And yet we're saying that the, the guy's going to pay a penalty because he stole an ox because of the value of the work that it can produce. This is an exception to the rule, perhaps by far. And that's why this is a question that bothers the salty student. And Rashi offers the name of a mayor to hint to what Rabbi mayor sells elsewhere. Says elsewhere, Chayshin on Lemiyuta in Aramaic, we consider the Torah considers also minority cases, cases that are not common and not even the majority, because we worry about all circumstances, and therefore our mayor's name is quoted. Moving right along. Why the emphasis in Rabbi Mayer? We're zeroing in for a moment on Rabbi Mayer. Why the emphasis? See how great work is. Rabbi Mayer's language in Rashi is very strong. Come and see how powerful is the value of work in the eyes of the Torah. That really he should pay five and the Torah reduces it to four because it's a, I'm sorry, he should pay four, but the Torah penalizes him a fifth because it's an ox because he, 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 he caused them a lack of productivity of work. Says the Rebbe, why the celebration of this big deal? Wow, come and see. Let me show you something extraordinary, unusual. That work is valuable. Really? Anytime you damage somebody, you got to pay for lost wages. We already learned in the Torah. You don't even need Rabbi Meir or the Talmud or Rashi. It's in the Chumash itself and the first Aliyah of this Torah, portion Mishpatim. That if I damage somebody, I got to pay five things. It's, it's, it's not all right there, all five, but... Uh, uh, we know that there are five of them. When you study the whole parasha of Mishpatim, Nezek damages, Tsar pain, Ripui, medical bills, Sheves lost wages, and Boishas shame. Sheves lost wages means a loss of productivity. It's it's obvious that when someone loses wages or loses productivity or loses work, to quote the language of Rabbi Meir, you gotta compensate the person. We need a big deal to say, look how important work is. Of course, work is important. We had a verse earlier in the Torah, shift though you think you should pay his lost wages. We need Rabbi Meir to, to introduce that. Is it something novel? And he introduces it in a novel way, like he's just discovered America. Look how special work is. Says the Rebbe something brilliant, but also so self-evident. When we're saying that the person has to pay a fifth time if he stole an ox because of the value of work, we're not speaking about the lost wages of productivity. The loss of productivity is not a penalty. It's a principal loss. And that's covered in the initial payment of the first ox you pay back. The second, third, and fourth, and fifth, they are penalty. The fifth being for loss of work 
which is different than loss of productivity, says the Rebbe. Of course, when we size up how much you should pay for an ox versus for a sheep, one of the considerations will be that in an ox, you're losing productivity. And therefore, it's going to have X amount of value. That's not more penalty. That's, that's principal loss. Just like lost wages that I have to give somebody, that's not a penalty. That's an actual principle. However, what Rabbi Mayer is saying is that in addition to paying the principal value of the ox, which obviously included the consideration of how much you lost in potential wages, potential productivity, there's something different. The Torah likes the concept of work. Forget about productivity. Maybe you have all the money you need. But human nature is that working is good for us. And if I stripped you from the ability to work, even if I compensated you, I gave you back the value of your ox. And let's argue, I compensated you for the lost wages that you may have had with that ox, the lost income. But I did not give you back the ability to work. And that is considered a loss because work in and of itself is special. And that's why the language is so celebrated. See, come and see how great work is in the line of Torah. And it doesn't say how great productivity is. How great work is. Work in and of itself is a value. And this is an extraordinary insight of the Rebbe. And in the, if you read the Sikha, you see I'm not going in order. I'm doing it organized in an easier way to follow. But the Rebbe in the Sikha also shows in addition to the fact that the, the two opinions and the two names that he sages lines up well with what they say elsewhere, as mentioned earlier, they also lines up with their argument or their approach in another similar discussion. Based on what we said earlier, the what that Rabbi Yochanan sees things from the perspective of the thief, of Meir sees things from the perspective of the victim, we find a similar but different law. And that is in the discussion in the Talmud, how come the Ganav is stricter than the Gazlan? The Ganav is one who, who robs, who steals under the cover of darkness or on, you know, when no one's there. And the Gazlan is one who is not afraid. He goes in day, daytime, he goes into a store and he takes stuff off the shelf or, or walks into your backyard and takes whatever is there. He's not afraid. He's not hiding in the darkness in the cover of night. And that's called a goslin. And the rule is that a goslin, a robber who's not hiding out, he only pays back one time. A ganav, a thief, who hides from people, he pays double because he's considered worse because he's only afraid of people and he's not afraid of men. The first guy's afraid of nobody. He's just he's fearless. Not a nice guy, but he's fearless. You stole, you gotta pay back. You stole something worth a hundred bucks, you pay back a hundred bucks. But the second guy went and he was, he, he went through pains to hide himself from people, even though Hashem is watching. That is a, a lower level immoral standing. And therefore he has to pay double. Not to be confused with the discussion of our sikha, which is not about double, it's way beyond it. Um, you pay double for an ox or a sheep if you, if you stole it and it was found living. This whole sikha was if you butchered it or sold it, as we said at the beginning. But in that other discussion that's highlighted on your screen, the difference between the Ganav and the Gazlan, the discussion is why the difference. 
So Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Meir opine on it. And there too, the language is a language of agreement, of agreeable. They're not saying Rabbi Yochanan, Omer, Rabbi Meir, Omer, but Rabbi, rather, Omer, Rabbi Yochanan, Omer, Rabbi Meir, similar to this language of this Rashi, that it's written in a fashion of that both of them are two sides of the same coin or two angles, two focuses, as we said earlier, which is fascinating. And they both say basically the same thing. They both say the reason why the thief is penalized more is because he's hiding out from Hashem and he's not afraid of people. However, the emphasis is slightly different. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says the reason why the thief gets a double penalty is because he shows that he's not afraid of God's eye. He does say that he's afraid more of man than God, but his conclusion is in the end, he's not afraid of the eyes of God and he thinks that the eye of God cannot see. Where, which means he's focusing on the thief's lack of faith. And that's Rabbi Yochanan's whole approach to things. He focuses on Torah's angle, speaking to the thief, as mentioned earlier in great detail. Whereas Rabbi Meir, he says it a little more complex. He gives by way of analogy. There's two people that make a party. Two people throw a party. One of them, he invites no one, except maybe his close family. He doesn't invite the town folk, and he doesn't invite the royalty, the princes. So the king's not so happy with him because he didn't invite the princes, but guess what? He didn't invite the rest of the town either. Not such a big deal. Not nice, but not such a big deal. Not such a big affront to the honor of his majesty. But the other guy made a party, and he invited the whole town, with the exception of the royalty, the exception of the princes. Aha, this guy's in bigger trouble. And that's the focus of Rabbi Meir. Why? This is what Rabbi Meir says here in this section. Uh, why is the thief worse than the robber? Because he invited the whole town and did not invite the royalty. So the Rebbe says, if you think about it, you'll realize that he is focusing more on the victim than on the thief's lack of morality. Because he's saying the problem here is not just that he didn't believe that he didn't invite the king, but that he did invite the rest of the town. I'm sorry, the king's children. He's not focusing so much on the fact that he didn't invite the king's children, but that he did invite the rest of the town. So applying it here to the analog, it's not just focus on that he is lacking faith, but that he is in the eyes of Hashem, in the in, in the providence of God. But he is, but he is, in fact, giving great regard to the eye of humans. And therefore, if you think about it, it's the same difference as earlier. Whereas Rabbi Yochanan sees, they're both saying the same thing. He had more concerned about human eye than God's eye, but Rabbi Yochanan looks at it, the thief's lack of faith, and whereas Rabbi Meir looks at it, the thief's over-regard for the victim. So in a subtle way, he is seeing it from the victim's angle. And therefore, it's sort of in line and makes sense why he quotes the name. I want to add one more point, seemingly unrelated, so to speak, it can be studied as a standalone. And that is, if in that Talmud that we just discussed, why is a thief 
penalized stricter than the robber. And we said that um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says because of the thief's lack of faith. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai there in that section in the Talmud. This is not in our Rashi. This is from the Talmud. Quotes three verses. Three biblical verses. And I'm, I'm quoting them here briefly or paraphrasing. One is that a th- person steals in darkness and he thinks he's hiding from God. Another biblical verse that he proclaims that God doesn't see. This is uh, in Psalms. Uh, it's a song of the day for our Wednesday. That God doesn't see. And the third verse, a verse in Ezekiel, uh, where God has forsaken the earth. person thinks that God has forsaken the earth. God so he says, why does, why does the Talmud bring all three verses, which is interesting, and also why does it bring them out of order? Psalms, which is verse 2, comes much later in the books of the prophets than the book of Ezekiel. Psalms is in the writings. Ezekiel is in the prophets. So why we bring all three and why out of order? Well, what's the point here? And the Rebbe brilliantly illuminates this, that we're, we're trying to analyze why would a person, a person of faith, come to a person, a yid, he has faith, a decent human being, why would he come to such a stoop to such a low to be a thief? A robber, I can understand. He's poor, he's hungry, he's greedy. But a thief, a person comes to a point where he's worried about his, his self-protection. He's not fearless, but he's not afraid of God. He doesn't think God is really watching. The Rebbe says, how can a person come to such a level? <laughs> I think for you and I, this is not such a big question. It's a, actually a very high, it's not such a big question to understand why a person might be afraid of man and not God. Uh, in fact, Rabbi Yochanan Mazaka himself is the one who famously said on his deathbed to his students, I wish you that you should have fear of heaven equal to fear of God. I don't know that for you and I, this is such a wow, but to the Rebbe, it clearly is. And to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, I guess it still is. And he's trying to explain by quoting these three verses, how a person can fall to that level where he is afraid of the eye of mankind and he's not afraid of the eye of God. Is he just a bad person? He has no faith. We don't want to assume that. And that's why he brings three verses to explain the slippery slope. One is the lowest level. He comes to a place where he thinks that that he can hide from God. That if it's dark, God won't see. If it's light, if it's daytime, maybe God will see. Idiotic, total lack of faith. But that's not where he started. He started from two and he ultimately started from three. Three is a subtle level of lack of faith. He believes that God has forsaken the land, which was the belief of many philosophers outside of Judaism who were people of faith. But they said, of course, God's not involved in the earth. He's too big. He's too exalted to care about lowly earth and tiny earth. So that's where it starts. That's where the kernel of this heresy begins, because it's coming from a place of exalting God. But then he comes and falls lower to level two, to verse two, which says, I proclaim that God doesn't see. That even if God is on earth, but there's too much going on and this is too minute, too much minutia for God to care about it. And therefore God doesn't see it. This is a more of an affront. But still he's exalting God by saying that God's too busy with more important. And then he stoops to the lowest level where he steals only when it's dark. <laughs> because he comes to a point where he actually starts to believe that God is here and he sees, but only when it's dark he can't see. And that's pretty bad. 
explaining us obviously how we should uh, be careful to stay away from coming to any of these levels and really to train our minds to recognize that God sees all the time and everything. I'm just going to close by two points that were brought up in my class at this point. Number one is there's always the concept of the thief who prays to God, which is quoted in Tanya from the Talmud. Where does that thief come in? And the answer that I gave is, which is the answer that Chassidus gives, that yes, the fact that he prays to God, even though he's violating God's wishes, shows that this is not really something that he's internalized. He's just using it uh, just as an extra insurance policy, because why not? But he clearly doesn't really feel the presence of God, which is why the Chabad approach is not to suffice with just faith alone, but to actually study the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God's presence so that we know it. And therefore, the faith becomes internalized and actually controls our behavior. Otherwise, faith alone, a person can be praying to God even as he violates God's wishes. Hasidus is not really impressed with that prayer. The other question that was asked is, just again, this is not related so much to the sikha, it's more related to this discussion that was the sikha quotes from the Talmud. Why is the robber getting away uh, easier than the thief? A robber often creates all kinds of trauma. Imagine a person who grabs a woman's pocketbook in the street. He's a robber, he's not a thief. He's a gazla, not a ganav. He only gets to pay one time, whereas the thief who went in quietly didn't cause trauma. This woman who, who they grabbed her purse, maybe she needs therapy, maybe she's hurt her arm, etc. Any type of robbery which is in your face can be traumatic and hurtful in many other ways than just a thief. And yet he gets away with less. And the answer that I gave, which I believe is correct, is that we're talking about here in terms of strictly the concept of reimbursing the compensation for the loss, whereas the robber will lose one and the thief will get the penalty of double. But if there's any other hurt, be it physical or emotional, that is counted separately. You know, the modern laws where if something happens to you, you immediately call your lawyer. Let's agree that they've run amok and got out of control. But the concept that I'm entitled, that I deserve to be compensated, comes from Torah. As I mentioned earlier, shame and pain. Pain can include emotional pain, let alone medical bills and et cetera. And therefore, in the case of you know pulling off the woman's uh, purse and you hurt her physically and emotionally and there's trauma involved, all of maybe the trauma caused that she can't go to work, she has lost wages or, or shame or pain, et cetera, all of that is compensated separately. We're talking here strictly about the compensation for the actual loss.